0: Dopey Podcast Dopey Podcast Well dopey now it's the time for the dopey podcast, dopey podcast Where you call in and dopey put all blast. your life on blast And you call in podcast. and talk about your past Because your dopey life was just hardcore and fast So dopey now podcast. is the time for the Dopey Podcast Dopey Podcast It's the Dopey Podcast The Dopey Podcast, yo this is the dopey podcast. This is the dopey podcast. Now if your life was dropy, just hardcore and fast. You feel like you often put your life on blast. Just call up the show and I talk about your past. Cause now it's the time for the dopey podcast. Dopey podcast. It's the dopey podcast, the dopey podcast, yo. This is the dopey podcast. This is the dopey podcast.
1: This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery Located in sunny Southern California In Malibu and Silver Lake Aloe was created by our friend Bob Forrest And his friends Evan, Bob, and Jared To create a program of recovery That is rooted in compassion and connection Rather than control They have decades and decades decades of experience treating addiction and co-occurring mental health disorders. Uh, I've heard from a bunch of people, a, a handful of people who have been to aloe and really, really, really say great things about it. So I recommend it to all of you guys. They've got amazing amenities. They make sure the detox is as comfortable as it can be. They do surfing. They do equine therapy. They do sound bath meditation. And, um, it seems like a great place to go. So if you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California, I highly recommend going to aloe. Attention cigarette smokers There's a less harmful alternative Available to you According to two studies published by Public Health England And the U.S. National Academies of Sciences and Engineering They found that vaping poses A small fraction of the risks of smoking And switching to vapes May have substantial benefits over cigarettes This is why So many cigarette smokers Have made the switch to vaping And their brand of choice is Twist E-Liquids. Twist is an American-owned company that makes its delicious e-liquids in Los Angeles, California. Twist has won several awards for creating mouth-watering flavors such as its best-selling lemonade, sweet treats, and dessert flavors. But Twist also produces a line of sweet tobacco flavors. All right, check it out. For dopey listeners, if you use the code of dopey. 30 you will save not 30% but 50% that is dopey 30 for half price on your vaping pleasure at daddysvaper.com that is dopey 30 fucking 50% off daddysvaper.com this episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at Sober Grid. What is Sober Grid, you might ask? I will answer. Sober Grid is the most effective and free app for addicts and alcoholics looking to connect with each other. They are a huge mobile sober community and a free, personalized, easy-to-access resource for tracking and sharing progress with others, giving and receiving support, and they also now have 24-7 live Peer coaching, which is pretty amazing. Another pretty amazing feature about Sober Grid is its ability to locate and connect addicts in real locations. If you're traveling and you want to find people that are in recovery, you can find them on the Sober Grid and they can find you. You can give them support. They can give you support. It is an amazing uh, symbiotic relationship among people like us. Unlike other addiction recovery apps that only help track your sobriety or keep you motivated, this app goes above and beyond. It is a virtual sober community in the palm of your hands. It is also rated as the number one sober app out there. So check it out for free, SoberGrid.com. This episode is also brought to you and most importantly brought to you by listeners like you through the Dopey Nation and I just want to be 100% plain and transparent about this. I love making Dopey. It is what I want to do. I would love it if you guys help me do it by kicking down to the Patreon. Throw two bucks, throw whatever you can, and it will help me do this for a living, and there will be much more Dopey in the universe. So if you're listening to this and you love the show, please uh, consider kicking down a couple bucks to Patreon. Thank you. And if you want Dopey gear, go to DopeyPodcast.com. As always, I still have Oyve snapbacks. Somebody wants to see one, so I'm going to post one. We have a few. Dopey snapbacks left We have a few dopey ski hats left Socks are supposedly in the way We still have our partnership With SRO Prince Out of Cincinnati, Ohio They just made a couple of new super cool dopey hoodies Their shit is available at Dopypodcast.com. Venmo me with questions, write me with questions Enough with these confusing ads about merch Here is the show Hello, and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And I'm Dave, and what a ridiculous week it has been. I think uh, perhaps maybe the lunacy of the president has finally been revealed to the world, which is exciting. Uh, what's not exciting is is America turning on itself and fucking invading the Capitol, and what a mess And I hate to see that shit, but it does make me... I mean, I wonder how many drug addicts were in the Capitol. I can't imagine being a drug addict and deciding to march on Washington in the name of Trump. Uh, But that's what makes me so happy to be involved with the Dopey Nation because we are a unified bunch, and we are unified behind the doctrine of drugs, addiction, and dumb shit and sticking together. And and I think that is... uh, My favorite piece, a bunch of you guys reached out to me after last week when I, when I complained that my program was for shit and I was drinking NyQuil and not going to meetings. And I really, really appreciate that. And I think that's the best thing about Dopey and the Dopey Nation is, uh, is each of us like looking out for each other, giving a shit if somebody's down, realizing how easy it is to go back out just by making a few false moves. And, um, and I see that too. I mean, the only reason that I have any time is because every day I don't use and any day I could use and any day one of you guys could use, or one of you guys could get sober. It's all within our kind of actions, which is amazing. And over the weekend, I decided that I needed to repurpose myself to my program. So, I went to a meeting and I actually met with my sponsee and we did some, some work out of the book and I talked to my sponsor and, uh, and I was prepared to have like a super program week when, uh, Linda had like an accident and she sprained her ankle and she got all laid up and me, rather than being able to do all this meeting shit, I had to step up and take care of my family, which should be a great thing. Um, and it actually was a great thing. I was expecting to be resentful because Linda get, you know, basically Linda got to lie around and watch TV, which is all I want to do. But in the end, I got to cook three meals a day and I got to put Susan in for naps and help Nora with homework. And I cannot tell you how good it was for my brain. And it reminded me of basically when people talk about the magic of service and you know, doing the next right thing. But the root of it is just being out of my own head and not getting obsessed with the things I'm worried about or getting down on whatever's not working in the moment. Getting out of your head is an amazing thing. And it's funny with the with the Washington, D.C. shit, like, it was fun to get out of my head with that. It was fun to watch TV. Like, I have to watch this for three hours. And it, I mean, like, as fucked up as it was... It was, it was, it was nice to take a break from life. It was a, a travesty in American history, but the whole revolution was a bunch of freaks needing to have a picture of themselves on Instagram. So it was a crazy, crazy week, and I am happy to be back doing the show. And our guest this week is somebody I've actually thought about having on for years, and I've been bugging him for years. He was actually my first sponsor, and he was totally my bridge. Uh, to recovery from total addiction. And uh, he's actually also kind of like a notable figure in the world of drum and bass music. His name is uh, DB, and his moniker was DJ DB. and uh, it was a treat to have him on the show, and here he is. And I'm here virtually with an old friend. His name is... uh, Before I say what his name is, I just want to say a few things about him and my experience with him, which was... Uh It's good stuff. Basically, when I went into treatment in 2011 and I came out and I needed to find, I I needed to get clean, but I couldn't get clean. And I had horrible experiences with uh, meetings and I found this Tuesday night meeting in Manhattan and I'm not going to say the fellowship to observe anonymity and it was like the ultimate fucking meeting in my mind it was a candle lit basement with rock stars and brilliant people and beautiful women and this man shared all the time and everything he came out of his head i was like who is this dashing brilliant fit worldly (laughs) person you're
2: mixing me up with somebody else mate fuck me
1: and i approached him and i asked him to sponsor me and he agreed And uh, I've been bothering him ever since, off and on, and his name... He turned out to be this very famous DJ, which I didn't know at the time, and his name is DJ DB. DB, welcome to Dopey.
2: Well, thanks for inviting me, David. You've been uh, trying to get me on this thing since you started it, and I I will confess I've been very hesitant to do it. Uh, But I appreciate you uh, thinking of me in those fond terms. I definitely don't remember saying, uh, you know, being, when I open my mouth in a meeting, I I kick myself afterwards because nothing comes out the way I intended it to do. And that's basically how I function in life. I'm like, fuck, I wish I hadn't said that that way. Uh, So it's nice to know that you at least thought what I was saying made sense to you.
1: I think maybe it was your neuroses that was so appealing to me because it reminded me, it reminded <laughs> yeah. me of my own neuroses, yeah. and you seem to be like Identification
2: is, is great a great draw.
1: Exactly, but I also remember, like, the first time I was texting you, I didn't have custody of my daughter, and I texted you. I remember this very clearly. I didn't know you, and I was texting you from the Long Island Railroad uh, on my way to visit uh, Nora and um, trying to put my family back together and basically poor db was the sounding board for my obsession with putting my family back together and we would meet uh weekly and you would hear a broken record going round and round about how could i have fucked this up and how could i get it back together and you were incredibly loving and tolerant and i will forever be grateful for that
2: well that's lovely to hear i don't think of myself as uh tolerant at all but so that's really nice i think i'm quite short uh, i have a short patience with things so that that is nice to hear david i do remember thinking and saying to you that you know you can't fix that till you fix yourself mate you know you, you've got a you've got to focus on your recovery before you can affect anything else in the world
1: i remember we would sit in the mud coffee shop in the East Village and they would play we talk we'd either be talking about rock and roll history or me obsessing about Linda and Nora. And it would kind of go back and forth between the two. Um, yeah, totally. Which, which was awesome. And then I wound up relapsing and disappearing. And um and I and I reconnected with you when I got sober again. So like um you know for me I love that you're in my life as a resource and um I know that uh your dopey story is relevant. How many
2: years do you have? It's a bit embarrassing because, well, it's a bit embarrassing for two reasons. One is I have literally lost track. Uh, and people who are you know serious about their recovery think that's, um, I don't know what they think, actually. But I think they think that that's uh I don't know, like, it's disrespectful or something. Like, you should lose track. It's somewhere around 36, 37, or 38 years.
1: Somewhere between I mean, 36 and 38 years.
2: Which is- yeah, I mean, we could, we could figure it out if you want to do a little bit of math, because I got clean August 1982. So what does that make it now?
1: August 1982... And now it's 2021, so we're going to say, I don't know. I can't do math. Yeah,
2: exactly, right? Know. It's like, I don't know. Somebody can do it yeah, for me. we're not very good at math. That's what that says.
1: <laughs> I think it's like 36 years, 36 and a half hmm.
2: years. That's what I'm going Okay, with. cool. So we'll, we'll call it that. And um, do you remember... But it, but it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. When I go to a meeting nowadays... The most I get from it is people who have one week or one year. You know what I mean? It's it's so much about a day at a time that huge amounts of time mean nothing to me. Uh, people with really long-term recovery often just waffle to me. It's like, it's not interesting. I want to hear from people who are putting this sort of recovery process into their life and how it is working or not working and, and that's what I get from it. It's got irrelevancy to me about how long clean time you've got.
1: When you hear someone share like that's just coming in, is it reminding you of how you felt when you came in or reminding you of the uncertainty? Do you know what I'm saying? Like Like I went this morning and and i go to these morning meetings and it's not a lot of people who are like struggling to stay sober mm-hmm. they're they're more struggling
2: to stay spiritual to stay sane to stay yes.
1: like on the yes.
2: ball on That's the, the struggle for sure it's to stay sane it, for me what i'm aiming for is gratitude because if I'm feeling grateful for everything that I've achieved since getting clean, I'm in a much better place than the glass is half empty. My, my go-to set position is moaning about everything that is not perfect rather than look and feel good about all this incredible stuff that has happened to me because I'm clean. So when, you know, going to meetings keeps some perspective on it for me it's not that i'm gonna relapse it's that it gets me back to a place of gratitude the statistics of recovery are scary as fuck every day people are dying from this shit totally
1: i mean when uh in august i i celebrated five years and uh thank you and i was basically um barely going though I was going like once a week I was going once every two weeks I was dipping once every three weeks and I was gearing up to go to this meeting to celebrate so I figured I should show my face a couple times (laughs) so they they knew who I was when I I celebrated but it occurred to me that that's when like however much time you have is meaningless when you're fucked and you're not going and you're claiming this time and you're psychically not you know firing on the ones
2: and twos properly you know what i'm saying like i need totally I, it was the totally. reminder no. to go back what's what's really interesting about this last 9 10 months us being in this situation is that I was on a sort of maintenance program for my recovery. I would go like you once a week, maybe skip a week here and there, but definitely no more than once a week. And I've been doing that for years. And I have a very small circle of people that are in recovery that I kind of connect with. But uh, there was very little sort of out of my comfort zone going on with with my recovery and then when the lockdown happened and I lost my job in March Somebody told me. Oh, yeah. So I started to go to regular meetings. In fact, the one you described in your first meeting, which is a Tuesday meeting that has been my home group for like 20 years. I started going to that on Zoom and I hated it. I fucking could not get anything from it. It was too big. It was too impersonal. It was too weird. I didn't. And then a friend told me that they have been going to this really small, odd meeting in London that is a lunchtime one-hour meeting um, and in London, so it's 8 a.m. here. So I forced myself out of bed a little bit earlier than normal, and I've been basically doing that 8 a.m. meeting every day. I maybe hit it five or six times a week uh, every week since March, and it's it saved my sanity for sure. Uh, There are people, and what's incredible is there are people who are now in that meeting that have recovered in the last 10 months through going to Zoom meetings. They've never even been to a real meeting. It's bonkers.
1: See, that's cool because I had a guy on the show, this journalist guy, who was saying how one of the great problems that 12-step will face is that how do you get newcomers to Zoom meetings, but it sounds
2: like that one is is doing the job. Yeah, it totally is. It's there's more newcomers in it than old timers and they're loving it. It's it's really extraordinary. I love that. And they're doing this crazy
1: thing. Um the Dopey Nation people do these dopey Zoom meetings. They do them every day. There's dopey Amazing. meetings every day and it's like it's I mean I'm hearing from people who got clean just from like kind of being on the periphery of sobriety like maybe they would smoke weed or maybe they would do this thing or that thing and they were at one point doing worse stuff and then they were like fuck it and they started going to these meetings and they're like fucking i want i want to see what the what the deal is with sobriety you know what i
2: mean it's like real total abstinence yes yes which is in my book the only thing that really works
1: yeah, I mean, I think it's te- it's it's interesting because it's so it's so much like using because you're not using anything. It's like it's like such a different consciousness to 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 live life on life's terms, like constantly. Yes, if there's no yes. break. Um, do you remember? Let's turn back the clock. Let's
2: go back in <laughs> time. I've got a question. first yes. have you been to the Dopey Nation podcast, uh, whatever it's, Dopey Nation meetings? Wow, well, it's funny you should ask me that. Um, because you'll be like a god. You'll be like, "Whoa, I'll save you." Well, check it out.
1: The reason D- DB like looked at the thing and he's like, "Why is Betsy inviting me to a Zoom meeting?" And it was because I didn't want to go to the dopey Zoom meeting. Ah, so very I, good. So I created this Betsy thing, right? And I yeah. went, and they, it was actually a, a meeting in England called the Dopey Birds. And and it's these women in England that started a Dopey Zoom meeting
2: and I Oh went, you're gonna get so busted, no, dude. You're a male snooping in on chicks.
1: No, no, no. It wasn't a woman's meeting. It was just they uh, called it the Dopey Birds were hosting the meeting. And um I, I open the Zoom up and I and I write in my name is Betsy, but what pops up instead is my big nose and my first and last name and they're like, Oh, it's Dave And I fucking closed the screen because I didn't I mean, like I wanted the God thing, but I also was didn't want the God thing. I I didn't want any of it. So now the answer is no. I've never been to a dopey Zoom meeting. I do. I, I do a Patreon thing where, like, you know, there's dopey people who pay into this Patreon. And and we do a Zoom for them where we play, like, games, and we do that once a month. So I, I host one once a month, uh-huh. but I don't uh-huh. go to the daily ones because I my ego can't handle it if it's too much or not enough. Either way, I'll be fucked.
2: Yeah, 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 totally, totally. <laughs> Right? The ego is a horrible, horrible thing. Right? It's like, it's yeah, crazy. It's horrible. Um, I, you- my, I have a, an extremely, extremely talented and successful friend in London, and the conversation we always end up having is about how our egos have driven us to be successful at whatever we've done in our lives, but... How we hate our egos too. That you know, we wish we could leave the ego behind. It's a very interesting
1: topic. And I, I mean, that really, like, that's the point. I, I mean, I think that's a point of of practicing uh, twelve step, or practicing Buddhism, or practicing meditation, or practice. Just a practice is to leave the ego behind, or to try to do it. You know? Yeah. And, yeah. And, and it's like I was talking to a dude yesterday. And he like his program is off kilter, and he heard me get recharged through this, uh, you know, this meeting over the summer. And I, I had been going, you know, every other day since the summer, and it was just recharging it by doing it, right, by practicing it. And um, like I'm a very mediocre harmonica player. Uh, in high school, I was good, right, and I got uh-huh. to this point of being good but I didn't keep up the practice to get really good. You know what I mean? And then instead I just rested on my laurels and I stayed exactly where I was. And I kind of do that around recovery, but the answer is practice. You know, and that's the answer to the ego thing too, I think.
2: It's practice, right? I I actually don't know. I um, really wanted to try mm, hardcore meditation because I was suffering so much anxiety at one point this a few years ago 10 years ago or so um and so i tried the tm thing um and paid the guy for blah, 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 and got a chant a mantra and the whole thing and i did 20 minutes twice a day for six months like i really committed like to to, to shut yourself off and stop whatever you're doing and just do that for 20 minutes twice a day was hard, but I did it for six months. And after six months, I felt no change. So I was like, that's is not for me. It doesn't work for me. Right. I'm much simpler now. I do, I do a nine-minute timer and I focus on my breath. And that helps me just stop obsessing about whatever it is I'm obsessing about for nine minutes. And I feel like physically a little more relaxed when it's over. How much do they charge you for the, the mantra? I don't remember, but I think a grand or two. Shut the fuck up. A thousand yeah. bucks? I Yeah, can't just... I think so. See, I think I'm, so.
1: You know, like Jerry Seinfeld does that twice a day, 20 minutes yeah. a day. Fucking Howard Stern, Paul McCartney. Yeah. I, that's all. I think that's the one thing I'm missing. So you're saying a thousand bucks for the mantra and six months twice a day and no change. Not for me.
2: All right, so I'm not and, and my my uh, what do you call it? The guy that was, you know, I should I should um, I should correct this. It wasn't actually TM. It's a version that, and I don't remember what it's called. But from what I remember, TM was two thousand dollars, and this was a thousand dollars. So I went with the lesser one, and got no results. Uh, because resolve. I was also told that it was. Uh, designed for people who have real lives and can't do what Transcendental Meditation is is like. I think the TM one might be more than 20 minutes to, twice a day. I don't remember. But regardless, this one was less expensive and I think slightly easier to to sort of integrate into your life. So I went with this version. And my teacher would tell me, you know I would complain that I'm not getting any any sort of change from it. I'm not feeling any different. I'm uh, and he I would say, I'm not doing it right. And he said, there is no right. You're doing it. Just the fact that your brain wants to, you know spin out and think about everything else except the word you're focusing on and repeating in your head that's that's what you're doing so just don't beat yourself up bring it back and that's what i do with the breath the breath meditation i just try and not beat myself up that i've realized i'm not focusing on the breath again i'm so that's that's it thoughts
1: will come in and out no i get it i i I had a great you know in in like september october november i was firing on all cylinders i was exercising i was praying twice a day i was meditating in the morning and like I was feeling really good, you know
2: what I mean. <laughs> it's so funny that you just stop, right? It's
1: <laughs> like, it's like no, but fucking December, like, was crazy for cats. Is. I put this stupid special for Dopey together. Um, cr- you know, Christmas was popping up, and, and and just too many things. And it got cold. I don't know. Too many things happened, and all of a sudden, I stopped. You know, I, I got back into my prayer. I went. I went to my meeting this morning. You know, I yeah. um. I, I, I'm ready to restart that's the best thing is that you can restart you can restart yes, all totally, these things it's, totally. it's
2: like, like I skipped my uh, cardio exercise yesterday and was beating myself up all night last night I was like oh I'm useless I'm useless I did it this morning you know it's, like, it's fine it's fine
1: but and that's the best thing about like if you really fuck up You know what I mean? Like, if you fucking go drink or you smoke weed or you shoot heroin, as long as you don't die, you can recommit yourself and start over. You know, it's like... Absolutely. I mean, the problem
2: with the actual relapse is the chemicals do things to your brain that make you believe you can't. Like, it's it's an illness. I do believe that addiction is an illness. uh, And... It's an illness that tells us we don't have it, right? And then once and
1: once you put the the mood or mind altering substance into your body, that's when the powerlessness comes in, and that's when all bets totally. are off and the whole thing. And uh, and that's why like you can miss your cardio, or I can miss my prayer and meditation, and it it's like it's a little bit of a a stumbling block, but it's not the phenomenon of craving, you know? It's right. Like, it's, it's, right right so now we're going to turn the clock back many moons ago to a young db in London Town. and do you remember the first time that you got fucked up
2: yes i do well i don't really remember i was 11 years old i don't really remember it but i've told the story enough to sort of have a a film-like view of it good um my best friend and I heard there was this stuff called Zoff that you could buy from the hardware store, and it was a Band-Aid remover, if I remember right, or a, a paint remover, or so it removed shit. And like it, brain the cells. chemical in it was cellulose, uh, and it's the same stuff that is in glue. So we poured it into a napkin, and inhaled it and whoosh, amazing rush, uh, followed by blinding headache. Um, but that was definitely the first time that I changed the way I felt using the chemical.
1: How old were you? 11. 11? Yeah. And, yeah. Ha- and how quick d- did you find yourself like, I kind of like that. I want to go back for
2: more, whatever. Two minutes? Right. Uh, I think we did it like several times till the headache part of the experience got too painful and we had to stop but we did it for a while each time the rush would be like whoa, stagger around giggling and then headache, ouch, ouch, ouch and each time the headache would get worse Um, and then we would do it after school for a few weeks I think on and off Uh, and That led to wanting to try other things, I guess. I remember finding a lump of hash in my mum's drawer. Somebody probably left it uh, at a party, a cocktail party she'd had or something like this. So I found this black thing, about an inch, inch, and I cracked a piece off. And we couldn't figure out what you did with it. Like, it was solid as fucking rock. So we couldn't figure out how you would smoke this thing. Um, and I remember, uh, like, trying to crack tiny pieces off and put them into, like, push them into the end of a cigarette. Sure. Uh, didn't work. Um eventually i guess we figured out that if you warmed it it became soft and we somebody knew how to roll a joint i guess i mean in england you smoke joints with tobacco right so you would put uh several rolling papers together and break up cigarette into it and then put the hash into that and roll it up and smoke it like that but what's interesting is i did that for I think two or three years without getting high. I smoked weed, ash, for two or three years without actually getting high from it. That's crazy. my, My brain just wasn't firing from it. But when I took acid for the first time, that opened something up in my brain where next time I smoked weed, I was like, whoa, what the fuck?
1: That's so interesting. Because they talk about that weed sometimes doesn't hit you the first time or whatever, um, and I never hear about you never hear about hash anymore. Do you think they're not making hash anymore?
2: No idea, mate. No, they must be. Why? Why wouldn't
1: they? That's you think in the yeah. recesses of Nepal they're still coming out with the old Nepalese temple hash with totally. the stamp on the back. Totally oh man those were the days um it's so funny i remember like if we ever stumbled upon hash and it had the stamp on the back we thought we were like really living it up um and uh i did acid before i ever smoked weed too um and and i think weed affected me the first time i i was curious yeah, I, I know
2: it would yeah for sure
1: i know how much uh rock and roll affected you when you came up when you were inhaling the zoff was there music in the air or was it pre-rock and roll also
2: no at 11 music i was already obsessed with music i would fall asleep with a transistor radio under my pillow every night i was obsessed with music from when i discovered it i think Um, my mum, my mum was a big music head, uh, and bought records. Like I remember her coming home with the Beatles White Album and me going, whoa, that's like sleeve is bonkers. Like there's nothing on it. What's, what's going on here? Um, so music was definitely very much part of my kind of, it still motivates me. It's still probably the most important thing in my life, yeah,
1: and uh, yeah. so how did it interplay with the 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 beginning of smoking hash spliffs, or 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 doing the zoff, or even when the acid kicked it all in? Like, how, what was the music well, I think role?
2: The zoff was a just the first example of me realizing that there was something I could do that would take me out of my skin. I didn't know that that's what I was doing, that I was self-medicating yet. But by the time I got to, say, 16, I was very aware that I was very uncomfortable in my own skin. I was very aware that I didn't like myself a lot of the time. I was very aware that I was socially incredibly uncomfortable. I had no idea how to communicate with people uh, and... Uh, I mean, I was a compulsive liar as well and thief at this age um and i'm not sure what those what those traits kind of came from other than this this feeling of not being enough, so you know wanting to exaggerate things to people and steal things so I looked better to people maybe that's all that is um also that it's defiance
1: it's defiance that you can do what you want and it's control that you could control the story about you by creating it to someone else and you could control what you get by choosing to take it like i think it's a lot of stuff in there
2: yeah i'm not sure for me if it was any kind of defiance i don't think i'm a rebellious person i'm too much of a coward really even though you're a rebellious coward, though. You're a very rebellious person. You've, you're,
1: I've known you for years, and I would say, even if you don't want to admit it, the spirit of rebellion is huge in you. You live for it. How can you say that? <laughs> you might be, the spirit of cowardice <laughs> might 20 live 20 in 20, you 20. also, but you know that you love rebellion.
2: You love it. Uh Okay, I do admit I love it. I don't know if I'm really a rebellious person because I think I'm a coward
1: it's two sides of a, it's 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 an interesting thing the rebellious coward it, i mean i yeah. think that i think that most re- rebels are probably cowards at the same time i think i don't know I don't, whatever it doesn't yeah. matter keep going I, i'm I'm, in, I'm interested so so you take acid you're you're robbing, yeah, By this
2: time by this time 16 uh or no i guess 14 we started taking acid. Me and my best friend started taking acid at 14 and absolutely loved it. Um, This was the first sort of thing that I fell in love with in a chemical sense. Um, I would do it when and wherever I could, always with just one friend. I was never somebody who uh, socialized or had many friends. It was always just one kind of oddball loser friend that was my bestie at the time and we would trip and we got to the point where we were tripping so much that it wasn't working enough and we were taking huge amounts like there was an Easter break at school where we were taking i think we took 30 hits one time and didn't get off that's insanity it, yeah, that's... it didn't have a tripping effect what it had was a crippling effect because back then i don't know if it still is now They used to use strychnine to hold these pills together. It was cut with strychnine. So your joints would be in miserable sort of physical experience. That was part of tripping. You would feel like your joints ached the whole time. And apparently that was the strychnine. So when you're taking huge amounts, the strychnine is really doing a number on your body.
1: And like, I mean, I, I mean, the most I ever took was probably five hits at once. And if I took five hits, I would lose my mind. So, like, I can't even imagine what 30 hits is like,
2: you know, five, I mean, well, two, it wasn't it wasn't doing anything because of the afterlife. If you trip two days running the uh, third day, it's not going to work. So how many days in a row would you be ingesting? LSD? We, we'd try and do it every day, but it would just get to the point where it wouldn't work. So we'd have to stop for two or three days. And were you
1: like some nutcase hippie kid?
2: Yeah, nutcase hippie kid. Good description. Paint the picture uh, for it. Like us. like flared pants that were so flared they had extra wide uh, you know, thick flares cut into them. My mum would make them for me.
1: Yeah. So she enjoyed she enjoyed your foray into
2: the counterculture. That's a really interesting question. I think my mom was a quasi-hippie. Well, she had, hash in that?
1: The, she had hash in the drawer. She's flaring the flared pants. Yeah, she was a
2: quasi-hippie in that she liked the symbolism and some of the beliefs mm. that hippied uh, But I don't think she... Uh, I know she didn't take drugs, other than maybe she smoked an occasional joint at a party, but she didn't do anything else other than that. And once I started to, once she discovered that I was, you know, using chemicals, she was very anti. So she liked the idea of her son as a sort of hippie kid with long hair and cool pants or whatever. But uh, the reality was not so great
1: She didn't like finding you in the detox on heroin <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Years later um, So what was the ascension like? Like, how, like what was the second Like how did your, your Because the other amazing thing about you is you got sober
2: very young so like, I don't think I was very young. I was 22. To me, when I got clean at 22, I was like, fuck, my life's over. I'm like, I wish I'd got this when I was 16. Right. It's so crazy to think like that. But I remember, like, that was a real unhappy feeling. Like, I wish I'd got this earlier. I'm now already 22. I mean, I guess there's an element of reality in that I'd fucked my whole education, I dropped out of school. At 16, because I could barely, you know, hold a conversation. I was so neurotic and uh, had such bad ADHD and dyslexia and stuff like that, that my learning disabilities were just uh, not going to let me learn at school. So I hit the, hit the ground running, thinking grandiose plans of being uh, the next uh, Irving Penn or the next great photographer.
1: Well, I'm sure. I'm sure. David. I'm sure dosing every day didn't help with your ability to edu- be educated or learn. Right? That can't. No, be- absolutely. Yeah. Um, but so, when did you get into photography?
2: Uh, there was a teacher at my experimental weird school that I got sent to because my normal school couldn't cope with me anymore, and they suggested I leave that was at 14. So I went to this weird school and there was one teacher that sort of took me under his wing and he said, you should try photography. So he taught me to develop pictures in a dark room and print and do all that kind of things. And I, I did really like it. Um, I've always been very visual. Like my whole life, I've been a very, very visual person. And I wanted, you know, if I could be anything in life, I would be a painter, but I can't even draw. So photography seemed like, okay, I know I like, I know what I think looks good. Let me try and take photographs of it. But uh, I tried for a few years, even after leaving school, to be a professional photographer, but I was so messed up in my head. I was too insecure to even, you know, communicate with people uh, honestly. Taking photographs was just it, it was a mess.
1: So when you're getting into into photography and it's starting to happen, and obviously you're using, um, yeah. did did the the substance abuse, did the drug taking, did the addictness impede your photography plans? How did those things play together?
2: It sort of happened simultaneously. As I became more serious about photography, I had also discovered opiates uh, and in particular heroin. Um, so, yes, uh, it definitely became more serious. Did we drop the call?
1: No. What, what was the first experience with opiates? How did it happen? Who were you with? Like, What was the impetus for it at all?
2: Well, that's a story in itself. Tell us Um, the
1: story. These are my favorite stories.
2: Okay, this is a long involved one. I have to start at the beginning. Uh, I had been a fan of a photographer who was doing album covers for some of the very first punk records that were coming out of the UK. Somehow I met this guy and somehow he let me try out as his assistant he also was a user of the narcotics and he and i went to we had grandiose plans to conquer or he had grandiose plans to conquer america he'd been doing really well in london who was he shooting Uh, what he wanted to go to new york what bands was he shooting I don't want to say specifically because it'll be too easy to figure out who he is. But he had really done a lot of great record covers for the first generation of punk rock records in London. Um, And even one or two American ones. He wanted to go to New York um, and we funded the trip by bringing heroin with us because heroin was very cheap in London and very expensive in New York so we did that and while in New York he'd always just given me a line or two of smack and I would snort at it but he was now shooting up the stuff and I wanted to have a, a go on that And he was like, oh, are you sure? Uh, And so he shot me up for the first time. He actually shot me up with Delorded. We didn't have any heroin that night, I guess. Um, And he shot me up with Delorded. And I loved it, of course. Um, You were in New York? What? You were in New York? Yes, we came to New York. We were staying at the Chelsea Hotel. Um, And What year was it? 78, 79 So that's 79. Like,
1: that's the heyday, right? That's like the heyday of the punk rock Chelsea Hotel You guys are pioneering drug traffickers and dealers And punk rock photographers It's a pretty, it's a pretty highfalutin story for uh, for for this kind of stuff, I have to just say that I see you getting. I, I love DB because he doesn't. I've known DB for years, and he does. He's not a braggy person. He refuses he, the second he starts telling these incredibly mythical stories. I see the wheels in his head turning, and he's like, "Maybe I shouldn't say what bands." And I just I know you, uh, and I know that you're you're, you're triple thinking yourself. Um, but it was the heyday of the Chelsea Hotel in the late 70s. We'll say that.
2: Yes. There are there are a couple. Uh, I mean, you're absolutely right. I'm very afraid of offending people or, or, or having people annoyed that I mention their name if they're still living. All of that kind of stuff. I'm very conscious of that. But there are a couple of people who are no longer with us. We can use that. That... Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, that I can tell, you know. Just like I can't believe that was me in those situations, like shooting heroin with Johnny Thunders backstage at CBGBs. Like, is that me saying that sentence? It's like
1: what? So well, how oh, did that uh, even happen? I mean, that had like, like. But let's get. So you're in the Chelsea Hotel. This photographer is is, is injecting you with diluted. And did you know? Right the first time that you were messing with it, that you were like, I love this feeling? Like how did it hit you? Like where pretty did it much, catch
2: you? Pretty much. I mean it wasn't it wasn't uh it wasn't one of those experiences where I hated it and it took a while. No, I, I was I was in for the thing. I mean, you know, I was I was one of those people that was almost proud to be a junkie. It was like it gave me an identity. It gave me, you know uh, ever since I was like 12 or 13 I'd always been attracted to bands that were druggy bands I don't know what that is it's a fucked up thing in my circuitry you know the Velvet Underground when I was 12 or 13 all the older kids were listening to the VE the uh, Andy Warhol Banana album and I was like what the hell is that it's scary but I'm really drawn to it Um, and now I'm in New York and, you know, the rock and roll heroin scene in the punk scene in New York was a small, small kind of niche culture. So if you had heroin, people wanted to know you, you know what I mean? It was like, so within a very short period of time, people who I've, couldn't even imagine uh, ever meeting like knocking on our doors saying, have you got anything? What's up? Hey, you know, like people that I considered superstars, they weren't, they were junkies in small punk bands that, but to me, they were like, Whoa, that's cool.
1: I think though, because the scene was small, I think though, first of all, like the music, it was just recorded so brilliantly It was it was just such an amazing time for music Like I'm totally into that whole period and, and era And I'm also totally I've always been drawn to that same broken down junkie musician Like I'm sure it played a huge part in my whole addiction And why I'm doing a podcast called Dopey on drugs addiction and dumb mm-hmm. shit um, I also... Feel like probably when you and this photographer arrived in New York, you were shooting high end punk rock record covers in England. You were English and you had heroin from England. And I think <laughs> to all these fucks, you know, Johnny Thunders was just the fucko guy from Queens who was probably so excited to be around English punk rock people, right? I don't
2: think so. No, I think not true. Johnny Thunders was, uh, your friend as long as you had something that he wanted to put in his system uh my experience with shooting heroin with johnny was he was all friendly till he you know till i said yeah i got something and then we would shoot it up and then he'd be off gone it was like you know he didn't care um that's my experience with with that anyway Uh, i mean there were when i say this small loser you know, little bands. There were real celebrities, too. Uh, There's a horrible memory I have of um, the musician Nico. This is a little later, after I'd split up with the photographer. I'd gone out solo with a girlfriend. We'd gone back to England. I'd gone into rehab, come out again, got clean, got a new girlfriend. (laughs) We went back to New York with heroin again. And... We were living at the Chelsea Hotel again, and dealing from the room, there's a knock on the door, I open it, and it's Nico from the Velvet Underground. And I'd met her at a club the night before and mentioned that we had this stuff, and she's like, can I buy some? I was like, sure, so nice to meet you. <coughs> Excuse me. We give it to her. Two hours later, there's a huge thumb point on the door, like, I think it's the police. I'm like, oh, my God, we're, we're, we're done. We're busted. And I open the door, and it's this little Welsh bulldog of a guy screaming at us that we've ripped off his mate Nico. Uh, and I'm like, whoa, 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 calm down, calm down. What, what's happened? And he basically explains that she didn't get off on the gear we sold her. She, he, she thinks and he thinks that we bunk. beat her, we right. ripped her off and I'm like, I tried to explain that, you know, this is really pure pure heroin and I've explained that it's from England, it's much stronger than anything else, there's no way this is not working he then, or somehow we figure out that she's on methadone and that's probably why it didn't work uh, but he was going to beat the shit out of me and who, um, who was this Welsh bulldog? His name was, is, John Cale.
1: So, like, basically, one of your heroes is is busting down your door. And what, like, what are you going through?
2: Panic, fear, uh, you know, like, how am I going to get out of this one? It wasn't, I um, love you, I love your work.
1: You're such an inspiration to me.
2: No, no, there was none of that. I don't even know if he cared or... or I you know, wanted to know that I knew who he was. Well, I don't think that was in the mix.
1: The scene was small and I'm sure he knew it but he but he wasn't a rich guy at that point, right? He was just getting his work done and needed heroin for his friend Nico, right?
2: Yeah. 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 I don't even know whether John Cale was ever, ever a heroin addict. I don't know. Right, but don't Nico know. definitely was and sadly never made it out.
1: How did she look in person? Was she as beautiful as all mythology says? Or she was Sadly a mess. Sadly not. She was a mess. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, when did it get to the point where you realized that it wasn't working, that you, you know what I mean? Like, obviously, we're having this conversation and you're uh, 30-something years sober. When did it become something that wasn't glamorous and good-timey and adventurous?
2: Well, I'm not sure it was ever really working, but the denial is so strong in people that you're willing to sort of ignore all the bad shit that's going on around you for the one or two little bits of like, well, that was cool sort of thing. So, you know, I, I maybe had a year uh, from when I first started taking heroin uh, where I thought this was great and I could have a life controlling this to the point where i wanted to stop in my second year i sort of realized i was actually now a full-blown addict uh and that was gonna be you know my life um
1: what was the real what was that realization though like, like, did you get sick? Like where, like, when did you realize like this was not like a a good thing? I was, a,
2: I I mean, excuse the politically incorrect term, but I was a pussy. As soon as I got sick, I would, you know, cry and go back to my parents and, and beg for help. And my parents never gave up on me. They would always, my mom would always try and find a different rehab situation. But as soon as I started to feel better, I mean, I think I earnestly did want to stop at first when I would go back in. But as soon as my brain started to normalise and I wasn't like suicidal, I guess the 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 reality of like I can't live in the real world without drugs. I just can't. So I, I would start scheming while I was in rehab i i you know yeah we all yeah. i mean like i think most of us
1: did that kind of stuff and like yeah, when totally. i when i make fun of you for getting clean at 22 and you wishing you had been 16 i mean i got clean i mean when we met i was 35 right and i wasn't ready to get clean at all um and, and when i got clean i was again i was 41 and still, I was like, "Am I really done?" Like, I wasn't wishing <laughs> right, to get the right, years right, right. back. You know what I mean? So, like, like the I. I mean, every every time I ever went anywhere to get well, I was like, "I, I want to get high. I want to get drugs." Like every time I went to a meeting, and they'd be like, "Call somebody if you want to use." I'd be like, "Well, I'm going to call my dealer if I want to use. I'm not going to be calling you guys Um because I, I my dr- my drive to get well." didn't come until I needed it. You know what I mean? Like it just wasn't around like my, you know, I, I, yeah. I, I lived in a fantasy land, you know, it, it sounded to me like, I, I love that you wish you had gotten it sooner because I think that it's that spirit that, that came to you. Like
2: when, how did it come to you? I I think I, I mean, I, I'm very fortunate. I was just ready. I was ready I, I, you know, after three failed suicide attempts, earnest suicide attempts, I have the, the scars on my wrist to prove they were, I was not fucking around. I wanted out. I did not know how to live. The last two or three years were just miserable. And my mom, God bless her, never gave up on me. And she finally put me into a rehab that just happened to use the 12 steps as their kind of business model. So they told me when I went in there, I was like, here I go again. But they said, well, you're going to go to a meeting tomorrow. And I'm like, what the fuck's a meeting? Uh, And and they said, have you heard of AA? And I was like, "Uh, I don't know. Isn't that a place where people go and get drunk? And they said, well, not exactly. And they explained there's a bunch of different fellowships and I was going to go to a different one based on those 12 steps, and I was like, all right, whatever, I don't care. I will do anything. And I went and sat in this fucking room full of, similar to how you describe your first meeting, where, in my mind, it wasn't candlelit. In my mind, it was floodlit by spotlights, and the light was so painfully bright, I was so uncomfortable, but everyone was so shiny And so illuminated and sparkling and gorgeous. And I was just like, oh, my God. And I didn't understand what I was seeing. Like, how can these people be talking about their addiction, laughing about it, and be happy uh, and talking about total abstinence, and if I'm really honest, there were also hot chicks in there, and that was an amazing uh, Draw. kind of magnet for me. I was like, "Whoa!" The yeah.
1: the funniest thing to me, and it's just catching me now, is like I remember when. I mean, first of all that that meeting that I met you at, it actually was candlelit. Do you remember that period of time? They like Vaguely. they didn't have electricity in the room, and they had like fucking. Candles on the tables. Like it was like, it was like what I always hoped that 12 steps would be. Um, Not to mention though, when I got there, I was so sick. Like I was like sick, like very fresh off of heroin, uh, very shaky. Like I can even remember exactly. It's amazing that it's the same fellowship. It's the same thing that I'm doing today because I was such a sick person. So when you showed up there, Do you remember that feeling of just total shakiness in in the face? Oh, I was so raw.
2: I felt like my skin was on fucking fire, and that everyone could see. It's just such an awful, awful feeling. Yeah, and I wasn't even that sick. I was just nervous. I wasn't physically that sick. I think I'd I'd already like relapsed. I think I was back from a quick relapse. Like, my mom had fucking just caught me before I'd actually developed a huge habit again. So, I, I wasn't actually that sick, so yeah.
1: But. No, but I think there's a there's a weird synergistic quality between even just like coming off of something, like withdraw like a month ago, two months ago, with the fear of something new. So you have this mixture of like you're sober and you might not be near like actual withdrawal, but that nervousness and that anxiety between the two things creates this new rawness that I hear you talking yeah. about. You know what I mean? totally. So like, how did it, what, what captured you in the beginning with it? Just, I mean, besides the attractiveness of it, which I, which
2: attracted me too. Um, I think it's timing. I was ready. It was very simple. I, I was so desperate to not feel the way I was feeling and looking at these other people like that was a higher power, no doubt. And my, my, my I, I quickly you know took the suggestion of getting a sponsor and I got a guy and he was uh, actually in another fellowship but I liked what he the, the fellowship that you and I go to it was very small in London at the time so we went to lots of different types of meetings and stuff and he was in AA um, and uh, he you know I I couldn't get my head around the higher power thing I just I'd never believed in God. Uh, And he said, well, look, do you believe that this room full of people that you are, like, amazed by, that are clean and seem to be happy, isn't that a power greater than yourself? I was like, yeah, definitely. He said, okay, just use that for now. Just That's your higher power. Fine. Just go with it. And and I I kind of went with it.
1: And that that stuck. Like, so many people, like, uh, really i mean I, I find that when people refuse to go with it, it's because they're not willing to go with it. You were willing yeah. to go with it. that's willingness, right that's that piece
2: yes, I guess i was i was totally what do they say the uh gift of desperation
1: yeah yeah i I, I had love, it I love I that, had it I love that phrase too um and so basically once you you slipped into it, uh you just stuck around
2: well yeah i uh I, let me think how this worked. So the, the rehab was like three months, uh, but you would go to meetings twice a day, I mean twice a week, or three times a week, I don't remember. And they would have speakers come into the rehab also. Um, and one of those speakers was this guy that I totally identified with. He felt like this guy could be a friend. And we befriended each other and we ended up getting an apartment together. Uh, So I lived with a couple of recovering guys when I first came out of rehab. Um, Actually, that's not true. That happened after about a year. I lived back at my mum's for the first few months. and, And then I got this apartment with them. But all the while, I was like, didn't realise I was on some kind of pink cloud, some kind of recovery pink cloud. I was so happy to be clean. I was also, you know, all of us were so feared up that we were going to just somehow relapse, like it was going to. You were just going to slip on a syringe, and the next thing you'd know, you'd be. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but, the, uh, uh, you know, after like three months of. Like serious recovery, rehab, and meetings and stuff. I suddenly had this revelation that I hadn't thought about drugs for a couple of days. Like blew my mind. Like what? Like when was the last time I thought about wanting to use? Because you know, when you first come in, that's that's just in your head all the time. Yeah. Wish I could use. Wish I could use. Wish I could use. And then I suddenly had this sort of thought that, whoa, when was the last time I had that? And it had been a couple of days. And I was like, wow, and that was really like amazing feeling that really uh, helped me become even more serious about the recovery process.
1: That's when you kind of realize that you can do it. Like when you like because because that phrase of "I wish I could use," "I wish I could use," really doesn't stop playing when it. Then you go. 10 hours or something you're like wait a second i didn't i didn't hear that and then you go 24 hours and you're like wait a second and then that's when it becomes obvious or at least possible to put time together and then you just go with it right
2: the other big thing that i couldn't get my head around was the never using again like that is just too daunting a concept when i first came around it was like okay i can i can you know i'm clean today yeah but the idea of never doing anything again that's ridiculous and this guy said to me you know just break it down really simply just if you can get through today can you get through today and i was like yeah i can get through today said then tell yourself you use tomorrow i'm like what he said, yeah, just tell yourself stuff you use tomorrow, and then when tomorrow comes around, I was like, Oh, that's a trick, mind trick, Jedi. well, you used that, you
1: used that one on me a lot of times uh <laughs> you did and and it worked, you know what I mean like and but I mean, I was you know whatever I was older than you were when you got it, but I was fucking really desperate, and I really yeah. wanted to get to the next day and and that that totally worked for me too, um one of the most amazing things to me about your story is how you discovered your kind of career um sober and it was such a, a an unlikely sober career which is you are the infamous DJ DB so,
2: like, somehow you found this. Well, it, it may be infamous to you, but 99.9999999% of the population have never heard of me. Dude, check it out. Wait,
1: hold up. I fucking posted a dopey sticker that I put in front of Katz's that you noticed one day, and you put one of your heart and crossbones sticker on it, and I put it on Instagram, and some dude is like, DB. You know
2: what I'm saying? Some dude in Arizona. So, like, that, I mean... Okay, so he's, he's the point nine nine nine. Like, there, right. there, there are people out there. Yes, so here's what happened. When I was a junkie, I fancied myself as a bit of a DJ as well. And I, before the end of my run, I'd played a couple of small clubs in London, really not knowing what the hell I was doing, just playing records that I liked, clearing the floor immediately. It was, it couldn't even be considered really DJing. I was just clearing floors. Um, when I got clean, I went to a club uh, with a bunch of clean people and listened to these two DJs. It was a big club called Camden Palace in London. And there were these two DJs. Actually, there was two different nights that happened one of them was this techno night with colin favor and evil eddie richards who were just seamlessly fucking blending records like serious serious dance records where you can't tell where one's beginning and one is ending and i just thought that is so beautiful it was like it was like orchestrating music it was just the most uh, amazing beautiful experience and then another night same club a guy called Rusty Egan who is a big uh player in the new romantics scene he was a drummer for lots of bands and produced lots of amazing records he was DJing this night and he was doing things with acapellas from one record over other records and sort of doing early mashup stuff and that blew my mind. I'd never heard any of that stuff before. And I just had like an epiphany, like, I want to do this. I really want to try and do this. And most people around me were like, you cannot do this. This environment is not for someone who is trying to get clean. And I ignored that and went and I was dating a woman who, had a friend who was managing a small club on the king's road and she happened to mention that they'd fired the current dj and mentioned to this woman i was dating if she knew any djs and i was like waving my hand like i could do that i could do that Uh so i went in for an interview and somehow got this gig uh, and it was like from ten p.m. till four p.m. and they gave me a trial night, or maybe they gave me a trial a couple of hours. I don't remember. But they hired me, and this became my life for three years, playing in this horrible yuppie Arab club. It was like it was like wanna be gangsters, wanna be rich playboys, and. Uh, few very wealthy Arabs. Um this was nineteen eighty three in London, so I don't know if you can imagine that climate. Shah Iran, blah blah blah. Anyway, uh, I learnt the technical skills that a real DJ needs to have. And I also learnt about keeping a dance floor alive and how you play with them. You don't just sort of shoot your load with your favorite records all five in a row, and how you tease them, and how you keep people dancing, basically. And so <clears throat> I learned that in a kind of horrible environment, and then got hired by a hot new club that was opening in London called The Limelight.
1: What were you playing? What kind of music were you playing
2: Uh, At the Yuppie Club, I was playing basically top 40, like the worst, the worst of the worst. Records that now, if I hear them, send such a feeling of anxiety, desperation and misery through my nervous system, things like... I just called to say I love you, uh, Stevie Wonder. Um, first couple of Sade singles, I can't hear anymore. First couple of Madonna singles, I can't hear anymore. The only ones that actually survive that era that I still am able to get some pleasure from are Prince and Michael Jackson. Right, right. But, the but funkier most records. of the rest of the music of that era, I cannot handle. So you can
1: still deal with Michael Jackson even after all that stuff? uh and musically yeah all right um so you get to the limelight and and like because if if you're in that 0.003 percent which i think might be pushing it down uh and you are a dj db person you know that you were one of the pioneers in the drum and bass scene or is that not true okay well
2: that's that happens a little later so but how what did it happen is-
1: how did it get there
2: what was the, the... All right, so I'm at Limelight. Things are going great. I'm doing my own club night on a Tuesday, which is pretty much a rock and roll night. We're playing five generations of rock and roll under uh, on one night. So everything from Elvis Presley to Zig Zig Sputnik, which was the hot thing of that moment. I don't know. Um, and everything in between. Um and I'm also there sort of bridge and tunnel Saturday night. My partner and I would do the Saturday night, which was sort of like whatever was hot at the moment, whether it was like the, the, the five big hip hop records, the five big house records, plus some top 40 dance floor mixes, um, eclectic kind of, um, I think they call it open plan DJing now. Uh, So we hear that there's a club in New York that has, is hiring international DJs. So I cold call this club called Mars in New York and say, we're big DJs in London. We'd love to come and play for you. They fall for it. They book us in for a couple of weekends. We have to make our own way there and find accommodation, which wasn't hard because we had friends. Uh, but I fell in love with New York. Like we were there for two weeks and or ten days, and I totally fell in New York in love. I went back to London. By this time, house music and acid house is exploding across England. Like this, it's now 1986, eighty no eighty seven. So the first summer of love. I don't know if anybody knows about acid house and rave culture but 1987 in London was bonkers um and acid house is spinning off to create its own subgenres one of those is called hardcore hardcore morphed into jungle jungle morphed into drum and bass i am now back in new york while those morphing things are happening and i'm djing in new york i had a club called nasa which was quite, quite infamous for various reasons. But it was mostly infamous because it was so young and there were many, many uh, underage kids in there that were from very creative backgrounds. Harmony Corinne, Lois Savini, um, Larry Clark made the film Kids based on Harmony Corinne's story, which all rotates around NASA.
1: Well, the question is this, though. You, you came up... In all of these places, I mean, one of the, I mean, the music was obviously the thing and the fashion was the thing, but the drugs were a huge piece of the the driving force. And here you are, a young man, a drug (laughs) addict, and and you managed to stay sober through the heyday. Uh, Were you the only one and how did you do it?
2: Yeah, it's an interesting question, and I don't really know the answer other than DJing since I got clean, has always simply been my job. And I'm very, was quite serious and found it quite stressful doing it. It took a lot of concentration. I was never there to party. I never went to the after parties to hang out with the kids. The scenes, whichever scenes I was in, I wasn't in those scenes. I was interested and obsessed with the music and the visuals and creating the environment for these people i was i was promoting events that were environments but i was never tempted i never had that desire to feel that high that these kids were feeling i guess i was lucky i guess yeah i don't i don't know exactly why i didn't i think i was just grateful enough you know i was in recovery i was grateful enough to not be a strung out junkie again i was having a uh, a career doing something creative creating these environments throwing these parties playing this amazing music
1: was there and crazy was-, was there crazy irony though in your head because i mean like i could be interviewing somebody who was one of those kids in the scene that you created and we would be hearing the most fucked up drug stories and here you are one of the people who created the parties who created the music in sobriety i mean you were you like was the irony palpable for you
2: at the time it didn't feel ironic there was feelings of guilt there were feelings of uncomfortability and questions like should this should i be doing this like even when i first started djing i would go to my sponsor like is this okay like and he would his encouragement was you have a talent you you're entertaining people of course this is okay you have a talent use it um when it got to the point where with nasa i was very conscious that nasa was a drug dustbin it was a fucking out of control party Um, and I was very uncomfortable I was always every Friday night I was scared somebody was going to OD and die Um, it wasn't an enjoyable sort of experience in that sense but it was very creative and so my the way I balanced it was I was always very very vocal with everybody around me that A I didn't take drugs anymore that I used to be a fuck up and if anybody ever wanted to know how I did it, just come to me. So I put my sort of open cleanse cleanness out there. I let everybody who was working with me know that, you know, I'm a recovering person. Did anybody and come to you? Did anybody take you up on it or no? Yeah. 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 Definitely. Kids would sometimes, you know, stagger up to me and going, I don't want to get out of there. And I would tell them how, how I did it and, you know, give them numbers and, very few of them, because it's it was psychedelic, mostly based. I mean, there was some ketamine and there was some heroin, but most of it was MDMA and acid. There wasn't a lot of sort of addiction in the classic sense where people wanted to stop because they couldn't stop. They just, yeah,
1: you know what I mean? Totally. I mean, but it's funny because when I started to use ecstasy uh in the like early 90s or whatever you know and I always like to talk about it on the show my favorite my favorite ecstasy was always like the dopey ecstasy it was like the fucked up ecstasy that you knew they were like slipping a little heroin in and you'd be nodding out and then when I finally did heroin I was like oh that kind of reminded me of the ecstasy I used to do. <laughs> so like, yeah so I'm sure that yeah. like that was part of the scene and, and something else that I know that we have in common is our love for psychedelics I mean, not just psychedelic substances, but psychedelic art, and, 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 and also where the drug culture exists in visual art. I think I've always admired... I mean, DB is like on the pulse of all that shit forever. It's like, you should see what's behind him in his house, these beautiful paintings, and DB makes the coolest art. We're going to get to his his sticker career in a second, but like... Isn't it interesting how you can, and I used to share about this at meetings all the time, that it was so hard for me to be so in love with drug culture and not be taking drugs or, or the conundrum of the two. And now, obviously, with Dopey, I get to enjoy what I love with drug culture without <laughs> taking drugs. You know what I mean? But it's interesting. That's isn't great. It?
2: That's great that you're able to enjoy it. I still have a bit of a conflict. I don't enjoy drug culture stuff as much as, Uh, I think you do Uh, I'm not I'm not Attracted to uh, You know Movies that I know Are going to be druggy Uh, I don't want to see them
1: I'm on the fence with that Like I can I and it always puts me in a weird place. Like my wife loves intervention, and I, I loved intervention when I was using. I would always root for the addict, and I was like, "Don't go," you know. I would like all that kind of stuff. And <laughs> right. now, and now I watch it, and I'm just like, I can't believe I, I'm that person. You know, it's just it's crazy. Like, and I know people at my the meetings I go to now with long term recovery, like you have, and they're not going to watch a movie like that. They're like, "Why would I watch that movie?" Because it's like yeah,
2: I, 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 it's weird. The older I've gotten, the the less attracted to it I am as well. It may be simply a youth, a youthful kind of uh, attraction, though I don't know. Like I watched um, *Train Spotting* two for the first time the other day, and uh, I actually—you're shaking your head—but I actually enjoyed it. I thought it was really well done, and the only part that I thought was unpleasant and also unnecessary was when they go and shoot dope again and i was like why did they need to do that i didn't need to see it for a start and and secondly it didn't add anything to the story i didn't understand what the was it because it was a simple uh a simple commercial decision like people need to see that i think that's Part of it, I watch trained. I, I like, I,
1: you know, these Amazon fire sticks and, you know, this, that whatever, I, I got an Amazon fire stick and I had a dude at my job jailbreak it for me so I could get free movies, right? so so i like uh and i I think you're
2: just admitting criminality
1: on the air well i think i've admitted a lot of criminality on the show so i think jail jailbreak (laughs)
2: you can't get subtitles my friend has it too you can't get subtitles That sucks
1: no it's it was terrible and i put on train spotting two and it was like the worst version of train spotting
2: two ever so i couldn't even watch it i I couldn't right right you you need subtitles even i'm english and i need subtitles can't even imagine what it's like for you Oh, no, but it was
1: like it was like the dude who shot it, probably shot it on a phone in a movie theater oh, right see. up to right, the screen right, so i didn 't really have an experience with train spotting too. Um, I need to watch it if you you get yeah, it, you it I think you would like it i 'll check you'd it. dig it i 'll check it out now d b has reinvented himself again, and I, I, it just hit me the other day. I think you had put out your first book um, before we met. And it was a book. Really? Book. The
2: first book came out in 2010. Is that before we met?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. We, okay. we met in 2011 or 2012. It just come out. Um, and the book
2: is called "A Stuck Up Piece of Crap." And the no, fu- it's not. No, it's not. What's the book a- is called "Stickers from Punk Rock to Contemporary Art," subtitled "Stuck Up Piece of Crap."
1: Okay. Sorry. The book is called That's Stickers right. from Punk Rock. Do it say it again?
2: It's called Stickers from Punk Rock to Contemporary Art. And it basically chronologues pop culture and alternative culture. And drug culture. 90- what and drug culture is in there. Yeah, alternative culture. That drug culture it comes fits. under that, I guess. So it's it it chronologues those cultures through adhesive materials, in other words, stickers. So Andy Warhol's Banana for the Velvet Underground in 1966 was the first sticker that I was aware of when I was like 12 in pop culture that fascinated me. I was like, this album is crazy. I don't understand it. I thought the record was called Andy Warhol because that's what it says on the bottom of the sleeve, Um, uh, and it has the banana that you peel off, but that's a sticker. So I used that as the kickoff for the book, and the book came about because I've been a pack rat my whole life. When I was into punk rock, when I was into skateboarding, I collected the stickers as a kid. When I was into punk rock, I collected every band that had a sticker, and I was trying to put, and then as I grew up, I just collected streetwear stickers and all this shit And my wife was pissed off at me that they were all over the place. And I started to try and organize this collection of boxes of crap. Uh, And while I was doing it, a friend who was a literary agent said to me, you know, that's an interesting sort of subculture you got there. And make an interesting book. And I was like, really? And we did a bit of research. And sure enough, there had never been like a timeline history of stickers it was interesting because it took three years to make the book Um, I had no idea what I was doing of course, I'd never written a book before, the fact that I'm now called an author is a joke because I'm I'm virtually illiterate you know this, I cannot spell to save my life I type. I type with one finger. All my friends laugh at me. Anyway, regardless, regardless, the fact that I'm now called an author author is is funny. Um, so, what happened was it was the moment in time when I pitched this book that Banksy was everywhere, and every publisher wanted Banksy, and I had a bunch of Banksy stickers in the book. So. I had a bidding war from three of the biggest publishers in the world for my first book. It gave me a totally false impression of how easy books are to do. I thought, "Oh, this is wicked, it's great. Um, the book was very successful. It was carried by you know all the big stores and every major museum art bookshop museum around the world It was incredible. And I'm, we did some exhibitions of these stickers. There are 10,000 stickers now in this collection of stickers. And my goal is to build an exhibition that can travel u- colleges, universities, museums, because it's a, it's a real piece of timeline, pop culture timeline.
1: It's also, um, it's also real art. You know, this book, Stuck Up Piece of Crap, I'm sorry I get the title wrong. The book sorry. is so good. The, the stickers are so cool, and I'm such a fan of this book. All I want is some dopey stickers to be in the third edition. Um, but before <laughs> we even get there, it occurred to me the other day, as I was thinking about our, when we we're going to have this conversation, that Stuck Up Piece of Crap in itself could be the description of the addict. Because we are the, uh, the whatever, the egomaniac with the inferiority complex. We are the stuck-up piece of crap. Have you ever
2: considered that or no? I have never considered that. Dude! The title, Stuck-Up Piece of Crap, uh, was meant as like an ironic title because most people think of stickers as irrelevant Pieces crap. Pieces of garbage. Like, they just throw away things. So... For me, they were always, you know, tiny bits of like a gem. It was like when you got a sticker from a band you loved or a skateboard that came with an extra sticker. It was a a little gem and I would store it away like a magpie would store. So it's an ironic title. Most people do think of it as
1: This is the most profound thought I've ever had is the addict or the alcoholic sees themselves as a stuck up piece of crap this this the the piece of shit at the center of the universe something great but only needed to be discarded do you not
2: very read? very profound
1: you don't thing. like this wow. profundity that i'm giving you right i don't know i think it was good
2: that's okay. deep that's deep man. it's deep i mean yeah i mean the title had a double entendre for me too because people always uh have accused me of coming off as stuck up like being arrogant so uh that that fit my sort of description of myself too exactly but but deep down you think you're a piece of crap but
1: you might mm. come off as stuck up it is a, a real yes. it's amazing yes. cuz obviously you might present arrogantly but you're not an arrogant person do you know what i mean like i i, I think it's amazing uh and i think that Really, I want you to sit with this thought How the stuck-up piece of crap Could be the addict and the alcoholic themselves I don't know Yeah,
2: well, I've got um, uh, uh, Since uh, we're on this podcast With all these dopey fans I want to talk about my new book Which I'm much more excited about than stickers Okay, know about this? you know about The Smile Book? The Smile Book Yeah, okay So the idea of The Smile Book Which comes from psychedelic love you know, you know that the, the smiley was part of hippie culture, right? It was used by, uh, I mean, it was, the smiley was created uh, in the early 60s. It's actually very, very uh, debatable of who invented it first. But the general sort of uh, the Wikipedia version is that it was created by a guy called Harvey Ball, who worked for uh, an insurance company, and he was tasked with designing something that would uplift the uh, moods of the employees of this insurance company. He was paid $45 to make the first Smiley design. Wow. Uh, It then got co-opted by the hippies as Have a Nice Day, which was sort of like a wink uh, and an acid tab sort of reference
1: like hope you get um, high today kind
2: of thing you your artists artists like uh robert crumb uh used it in his mr natural comic and zap comics and stuff like that but then like in the 60s and 70s in america it was very much part of sort of hippie culture and stuff but then what happened in the uk was in the mid 80s when Acid House was born, it became the face of Acid House. The smiley. And, yeah, the smiley did. Um, the, the very one of the very first clubs uh, was called Shoom, and it used the smiley as uh, its logo. And then it just got co-opted by the whole movement. Um, and I, for the last five years, my partner and I, Richard Brow, Brau- have been working on a book that has been. Basically, what we do is we show, it's a very small little fun book. It's not an academic book at all. It just shows artists that have used the smiley in their art. So there's a lot of culture jamming, a lot of logo flipping, uh, a lot of graffiti. um, And uh, we're really excited because it's coming out. In fact, you can pre-order it now uh Dave can you send a like put a link up when Absolutely. you yeah all right wicked if you go to the smile book on Instagram you will find it too but it's being printed right now at a very very good printer in Italy um and we we've what we've done is we've it, it looks like a 30 or 40 dollar book but we've tried to make it as cheap as possible so everyone can get a smile because god knows do we need a smile right now look what's going on in the world i mean dude i'm excited
1: i I just love that you're doing these visual books and i love that they all go back to the roots and, and the roots are are very much dopey roots so i think it's very significant to this story and dopey nation check out the smile the smile book and the smile project and i will link them all to it and
2: um amazing thank you
1: Um, no, I think it's great. And and I, and I'm going to, we'll do, you know, we'll, we'll do it up however you want on social media. Um, I love you, DB, regardless of anything, you've only been an amazing friend to me and, uh, and, and done so much good stuff for me. And I'm so happy that we're still friends. Um,
2: you have to know that like uh, when things happen to me, I I, I really do appreciate you. Um, I, I think you've done amazing things. Uh, for people as well, you know, um, this podcast is helping uh, a lot of people and you, you've got a great heart. And you're the only sponsee I've ever had who made me laugh. Really? <laughs> Literally the only one. Well, that's a good deal then, right?
1: Yeah, totally. And I love you. And I love you. And and what the Dopey Nation should also know is uh, DB believed in my Oyve idea to the point of, dealing with me and, and putting out the first Oive stickers which were featured in the second sticker book. So they That's know, right. we've been selling the Oive snapback on uh Dopey. So I've sold a few of them whatever. But Oive is dead, but hopefully we didn't do as well as we expected. We had we had high hopes. I think that's it. an understatement. Yes. Well, <laughs> what are you going to do? DB uh I'm so happy you came through. If there's anything we can ever do for you, never hesitate to
2: ask. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dopey Nation, for listening. If you stuck it out to the end, stuck it out. That's a good sticker sticker pun. Before we go, <laughs>
1: all right, Dave. Uh, thanks, man. Take care, man. So that was the great DB, and um, I don't know. There's something very meaningful to me about having him on Dopey after everything that he's you know helped me with, and kind of everything I put him through. Uh, definitely check out his books. And um, it felt good. I want to read, read you guys a, a couple emails that I just got. First one says, Hey Dave, I'm kind of glad your program is shit right now. It makes me feel better because mine is kind of too. I've just, thrown, I've just kind of thrown self-care out of the window lately. Last night I ate like three Ferraro Rocher balls. I'm not even sure what they really are. They're hazelnut and chocolate. Anyway, a whole tube of Pringles and two child's school cereal cups of cinnamon apple Cheerios. I haven't even heard of those. I haven't. I also haven't been doing meetings, counseling, or shit else because of COVID, but I have worked out three days in a row, so I'm not a total shitbag. But after listening to 273 and you and Ray talking, I'm confident I can come back from this. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Uh, you are not a total shitbag. That's awesome. I don't know about that apple fucking cinnamon Cheerios, though. Here's another email I want to read real quick. Hey, Dave, I just wanted to drop a quick email and say thanks for everything you do. I've listened on and off since close to the beginning and can still remember listening on my headphones while mowing the lawn when I heard about Chris and I was broken for you. I live about five minutes outside of the west side of Chicago, which is pretty bad for me considering my drug of choice is heroin. I was in active addiction for about five years coming into 2020 when I tried to get clean first back in June. That's a story for another day, but it involves wrecking two work vehicles while high and finally trying to detox at home with emodium, resulting in an ambulance trip to the ER. I was clean for a while, but have since relapsed, and I'm on day three of my second attempt at getting clean, and I wanted to reach out and let you know how much I appreciate what you Ray, and everyone in the Dopey Nation do and how much you're helping me through right now. I'll make sure to get some mercy ordered and join the Patreon so I can support the show soon. Stay strong and fucking toodles for Chris, Todd, and Colleen. Thanks again, Dave. Um, I love both those emails, but this email I love because, um, you know, relapse is a thing that happens, and I've often claimed what they say that I find super annoying is, Relapse is part of my story. And what I always said is, is relapse wasn't a part of my story because I hadn't been working a spiritual program before I got sober. Uh, but the truth was that I did manage to carve out a little bit of time. And then uh, I remember, though, in that time, my, my obsession and compulsion to use was never really lifted properly. And, um, and it started by drinking on dates. That's how I wound up relapsing completely. And uh, and I went out for a few more years. And, of course, I didn't get back into total heroin oblivion, but uh, but I was probably going to. And, and Dave, the dude who just wrote that email, you know, like repurposing yourself is the greatest thing. Like if you don't die, you can get back into it. And um, I love to hear from you. I love to hear from everybody who writes in. What we're lacking is some serious knockdown, drag out fucking dopey stories. So if you have the inclination and a fucking knockdown, drag out dopey story, please send it in to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. And I think that's our show for the week. I would love to hear from you. I hope you guys are all doing well. Next week, we will check in on dopey Reddit and much, much more. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris.
0: I want to take a walk around the world I wonder would it do me any good Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood But I want to be good so bad want to be so good, so bad, so bad I wanna be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And I wanna take a ride up in the sky Watch does airplanes just pass me by And I wanna see the air, jetliner take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive But I wanna be good so bad Wanna be so good, so bad, so bad. I wanna be good, so bad. Bad desires, all I ever had. And my shadow's getting smaller and smaller. And it's time to where I stand. Shadow's getting smaller and smaller. And it's time to where I. Hey it any mind When I leave this busted city far behind I'll take the high road however far it winds Because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find And I wanna be good so bad Wanna be good so bad so bad I wanna be good so bad Bad desires, all I ever had. Damn it, all these suckers make me mad. And it's all I ever had. And it's all I ever had. And these suckers make me mad. And I want to call my dad. And it's all I ever had. It's all I ever had. And it's all I ever had. And it's all I ever had. And these suckers make me mad. And it's all I ever had. And I want to call my dad. And it's all I ever had. And it's all I ever had. And it's all I ever had.